Let's read through here the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. I'm reading out of the New King James Version. It tells us this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. We've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. We're halfway there. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth to put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when they heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside to the region of Galilee. And he came. He dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. And then just the first three verses of chapter three, first two rather. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray together. God, this is your word, and we are thankful that you have not left us in the dark to Just make our way through life, trying to find purpose, trying to find meaning. But God, you have come, Jesus, as a light into this world. You've given us your word, which is a lamp 
to our feet, a light unto our path. Now, God, as we turn our time to hear your word preached, we ask for your spirit to speak. God, this time is not worth it if it's just Andrew trying to get out a sermon. So we invite and we implore for your spirit to speak to our lives in the way that only you can, to soften our hearts in the way that only you can, and use your word to do that. Give us ears to hear what you want to say to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of the message this morning is this. It's Clashing Kingdoms. Clashing Kingdoms. That's exactly what we see here in Matthew chapter 2. We see a clashing, a contest, a contrast, a conflict even between what is the kingdom of Herod versus the kingdom of Jesus. Uh, There's been entire books that have been written about these wise men, around these wise guys, as my dad would say, all right, Um, written about these characters. There's been countless books written about the star that has led them to see Jesus, but that is not the point of this chapter. As I said, the wise men are extras to this narrative that's going on behind the scenes here in Matthew 2. And it's a narrative of a good, classic conflict between kings. Some of the best movies are classic uh, conflicts between one kingdom and another. And usually the best ones are the ones that it's like the resilient, small group. This is Sparta kind of group. Going up against the tyrannical regime. Kingdom against Kingdom, and here we have the tale of the take. In one corner, Herod. In the next corner, you have Jesus. This duel of kingdoms. The king of the Jews, the kingdom of Jesus. First and foremost, let's understand that the gospel of Matthew has specifically been gifted to us. Matthew wrote this gospel to specifically reveal to us that Jesus is the king who has come. That's the theme of the gospel of Matthew, that through Jesus' birth, as I love, by the way, that first song that we sang here, that born is the king. That's what Matthew comes to teach us, that through the birth of Christ, Luke would tell us, you know, it's Christ, he's the savior, he's the promised one. John will give us some theology and say it's the word made flesh. This is God manifested as a human being. But Luke is, or rather Matthew is trying to show us that through the birth of Jesus, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated on earth. The kingdom of God has come through the coming of King Jesus. That's what's going on here. Not just any old birth, but a king has been born. This is so significant because this doesn't just give us a vision for how all things will one day be. The book of Revelation gives us that vision. In Revelation chapter 11, it says, The kingdoms of this world one day will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is our future hope. Amen. This is our future hope. Amen. Amen. Our future hope is we know that at the end of the day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the glory of Jesus, that the king will reign, and that's a really good thing. That kingdom that Jesus inaugurated, it will one day be consummated. And the kingdom of God will be on earth as it is in heaven. But this also brings us back to a time in the beginning where this is how things were before sin, right? When God created man in his image, well, he he actually delegated to humanity, Genesis tells us, a certain level of royal authority. He gave man dominion. He created us in his image to enjoy him and to rule over as sort of his subjects under his kingship. We got to rule over as our own little 
kings and queens on this earth. We got to rule under him and to carry forward the beauty of his creation, to enjoy all that he's given and ultimately enjoy him. We know what went wrong because it's what still goes wrong in our lives every single day. We said what the people said in Jesus' time, we don't want him to rule over us. I prefer to be my own king. That's exactly what Satan tempted our first parents with. He said, hey, here's how this, this is why God wants you to be like this. He knows that if you eat of this tree, you'll become like him, knowing good and evil, your own autonomous authority. You could be your own king. You can have your own kingdom. This is the same temptation and sin that Satan himself fell into. And from there, you have the complete fracturing of this world. You have a separation where the kingdom of God is now ripped away from the kingdom of this world, and a conflict then ensues. This is the entire narrative of history. God created us to be our king and to enjoy him as our king, but instead we wanted to be our own kings. And we have joined, in a sense, this rebellion against God with all of those fallen angels, even. And the result? Well, it's the world we live in today. It's broken. We're broken. And that brokenness is the result of a dethroning. Dethroning. The dethroning of Jesus. And this is why the gospel is such good news. You see, though that kingdom that was there from the beginning, though it was fractured as we separate in our relationship from God, God would give a promise through this prophet Isaiah. And he said that there's going to be a child who's going to be born. For unto us a child is going to be born. And unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then Isaiah says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it, Oh, the day with judgment and justice, peace like a river from that time forward, even forever. And then this great promise, God is passionate about performing this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This was the promise of Christmas. And this is kind of foreign to us. I mean, a lot of us are familiar with Christmas being you know, the little baby Jesus and, and the manger and the six pound, eight ounce Ricky Bobby. We're familiar with that. We're familiar with like the general story of Christmas. But when you look at the full narrative of what's going on here in the world, what God sees is the inauguration and the fulfillment of a promise that though we have been separated from him, he is coming back. He is sending his son. He's going to fix what's been broken. He's going to re-inaugurate Jesus as king. As a glimpse to what's to come. As, as, a, as a foretaste of the hope we have in the future. We know this king Jesus will himself, he will hang on the cross. He will wear a crown of thorns. Above his head will be inscribed king of the Jews. This king will lay down his life so that we could inherit his kingdom. This is the promise. And this is what's happening here in Matthew 2. The king has come. The kingdom of God, it's, it's here. We even just read that last verse I had us go into Matthew 3, where John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner, he began his ministry by saying, hey, turn your lives around. The kingdom of God is here. It's here. It's a reason to stop and turn and pay attention to what God's doing in the world. Now, as we said, there's a bit of a clash going on. This kingdom of Jesus that's being inaugurated, this promised Messiah, 
that Matthew, I want to say this, Matthew specifically is leading us to see that. Um, the book of Matthew being the first book in the New Testament, in, our, in, our, in the, the chronology of our Bibles, in the order of our Bibles, it's not incidental. It's very um, intentional and pragmatic. Uh, the book of Matthew, it's been said, is like the bridge between the Old and the New Covenant. The Old Testament, if it just ends where it is, it's just a bunch of unfulfilled promises. And if we just kind of pick up with Christian living, well, we're kind of just doing stuff and, and, and we're kind of just ordering our behaviors around another religious system. What Matthew gives us in his gospel is he gives us a bridge between the old and the new, and that bridge is Jesus. In fact, it's, it's more in the gospel of Matthew than any other gospel where you'll hear Matthew say over and over again, thus it was, anybody know? Fulfilled. Thus it was fulfilled. I think even in this chapter, we read it like four or five times. Thus it was fulfilled. Thus it was fulfilled. What Matthew is trying to show the Jewish people is that Jesus has fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law. He is the promised Messiah. It's miraculous. We saw it all throughout there. Even where he ended up being raised there in Nazareth, he's the promised Messiah. He's the king who has come. I especially love the way that Matthew begins chapter 2. And, and he says it this way. He says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king. Now, to the original listeners, they understood the context. They, they probably did something like this. Ooh, right? Like, all right, let's try that actually. Okay, let's get, let's get a nice ooh, okay? So Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. Yeah, that's right. That's what's going on. Matthew is setting up this conflict, this Okay, it's kind of like, let's sit back and watch what happens. The king has come, but, well, someone's on his throne right now. His name's Herod. Herod the king. I love it, lowercase k. I think that's good. That's good. Herod the king. By the way, this guy, Herod, he gave himself the title king. It's kind of like you at your house. I'm the king. This is my house. Right? That's what it is. I got the TV remote. That's the guys today for the Dolphins game. Well, we pray. For favor, in Jesus' name. Okay, so self-described king. This is Herod the Great, in case you're wondering. Herod the Great. This is the first, the father of a long line in the dynasty of Herods who will rule and reign in the land of Israel. From this line, you have guys like Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa. You have all these different characters, but this was the first. This was Herod the Great, standing in at four foot four. I wonder if he gave himself the name Great. Who knows? Herod was a small guy who had some major accomplishments. Uh, he was certainly great. Herod the Great was a great figure. What he was able to accomplish, there's some incredible sites that you could still go and see today. The Masada in Israel, the rebuilding of the temple, Herod's temple. This guy was a master builder and developer. This guy got stuff done. He was sort of a puppet, the puppet of Rome in Israel. He kept the Roman peace. He was an Edomite, whose many people think his lineage converted to Judaism. But he was there as kind of like a vastal king. He was there taking the seat, making sure as a puppet of Rome that everybody did what they should, said what they should, and conformed to the laws and the peace of Rome. He was certainly great, but it wasn't just his accomplishments that were great. You could also say that Herod was great in cruelty. This is an evil dude. This is a fallen and depraved guy. We just even saw a glimpse of that as he has these 
innocent children massacred, all to protect his throne. Herod, the history tells us at one point in his life, at one specific night, he had one of his wives and three sons all killed. All killed in the same night out of insecurity over his throne. Another scholar teaches that, that when Herod was nearing the end of his life and, you know, when you kind of rule that way and you just, like, kill everybody, not a lot of people want to vote for you again. They don't really like you. And so no matter how good your campaign is, in fact, Herod, this is what's interesting, the guy that Herod was com- campaigning against, Herod ended up having him executed once he won. That's what ended up happening. Toward the end of Herod's life, he knew that no one was going to mourn his death, so he took 200 Jewish fathers prisoner. Uh, prisoner. And he had it it decreed that when he died, these other 200 Jewish fathers needed to be executed so that there would certainly be weeping and mourning in Israel. Thank God that didn't end up happening, but it's certainly not without some evil that this guy left on this world. This was a cruel dude. He was a small guy with some big insecurities. Maybe these projects were his way of trying to find an identity and overcompensate. Nonetheless, I see him as more than just a human. I see him as a tool in the hand of the enemy. This conflicting kingdom, this clashing kingdom that's seeking to come against the purposes of Jesus. And that's exactly what we see. We see this clash, right, between this guy, this evil, messed up guy, Herod's kingdom, and Jesus' kingdom that's coming into the world. We read the narrative. This clashing, it starts to come to bear when a couple of these wise men come from the east. And they're following this stars. In the Greek, they're magi. These are, these are potentially astrologers. They're, they're using the stars to navigate. They potentially even had the Jewish scriptures and read about the prophecy that a star would arise out of Bethlehem. They, they had this hope. They had these promises. We don't know every detail. We don't know who they are, how many there were. We don't know where they came from exactly. We don't know what that star was that ends up resting on the house. Not the point. Not the point. Not the point of this passage. See, these men were, were a part of this greater narrative of this conflict. So they come to Israel, and they're saying, it says they're saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And that word they're saying, I think it's verse 2, it means everywhere they go, they're like investigating. Have you seen him? Where is he who has been born? There could have been, potentially been a whole caravan, caravan with these wise men asking around, spreading the news. They're trying to find this king that's been born so that they can worship him. Everywhere they go, looking for this promised king. And this is where the clash begins. As Herod, it says, he was greatly troubled. Everybody say, aww. Yeah, we got some sound effects today, okay? He was greatly troubled. I love it. And all Jerusalem with him. Sounds to me like, the, it's kind of like when like a nation, they have to like cry for their, like, oh yeah, oh, sad. don't kill us. You know, it's kind of like that. All of Jerusalem, they're, 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 they're devastated that there's potentially a new king to be born. So what does Herod do? He inquires from a couple scribes about some details in the Torah as to where would this king be born. Let me help the wise men out. And they tell him specifically what the prophets say. They tell us that the promise was that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. And so this clash, it starts to bud. It starts to flourish even more when he calls the wise men to himself. And he tells the wise men, okay, here, I'm here to help you out. I want to worship him too. Someone say, good one. Yeah, it's a joke. That's not real. 
Herod's not looking to worship this new king, but he's kind of like, he's, he's, he's faking the show, and he's saying, let me know, I want to help you out so that I got these mixed motives. Come on, we, we know that you can't always listen to everything everybody says and receive it for 100% truth. You've got to watch their life a little bit. Ladies, I don't care what he said to you, at least give it like four months. Just watch him a little bit. That was free, okay? But Herod here. He, he knows that there's, there's more to the story, so he's trying to help these wise men. Let me go. I want to I worship him too. And as they go, as they come before Jesus, we see the clash begins to ensue even more. Here's a few ways that we see Herod and Jesus' kingdom clash. The first thing that we saw there is that we saw a clash of conflicting authorities. That's the first thing we see, a clash of conflicting authorities. Herod, he's the king. He gives the word. He's the authority. He says, here's what you're going to do. Let me know when you find him. Make sure you do that, okay? That's, you're going to do it? And they said, okay, we'll do it. They end up there. They go and see Jesus. And as the angels reveal to them, Herod's got mixed motives. And so what do they do? I love it. They just dip out, verse 12. Being divinely warned in a dream, they turned to each other and said, let's go home. And they departed, each one to their own country, another way. They were rebelling against Herod's Authority because they were submitting to God's authority. Rebelling against Herod's authority because they were submitting to God's authority. It's conflicting authorities. The reason why they were able to disregard Herod's order is because they understood that Jesus was a higher authority. So no matter what Herod had to say, no matter what he wanted them to do, I'm not going to pay any attention to this because you might be the interim king of Israel, but we serve a God who is called this, the king of kings. The king of kings. He's the king of every king, and he's the most awesome king out of all the kings. It's 1 Timothy that says he's the only potent king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is the highest Authority. In fact, this is, you guys remember this? When Jesus commissioned his disciples as Pastor Jorge was sharing, that commission to go into all the world and to preach the good news of Jesus and watch Jesus rescue people from sin and be brought into relationship with him, that commission that Jesus gave hinges on the fuel of a prior statement. And it's this statement in Matthew 28 where Jesus says, All what? Authority. Let's try that again. All Authority, Jesus says, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So Jesus is saying this. There is, not only is there nowhere that the sunlight touches that I don't have authority, but there's nowhere anywhere that's somewhere that I don't have all the authority. So we're going to take the gospel into Boca. We're going to take the gospel into El Salvador. We're going to take the gospel everywhere we go because what's behind that is we have a king above all kings who's commissioned us and sent us. Now, this was fuel in the early church. Do you remember this? As the early church, they began to fulfill this great commission, they started to come up against some opposition. And one of the comments of their opposition was, hey, you got to stop. You got to stop doing what you're doing. Your message is, it's offensive. You're, you're, you're saying things like people are in sin. You're saying things like Jesus is the only way to be saved. You're calling people to repentance. And they said, you got to stop or else we'll keep torturing you. We'll keep beating you. We'll keep persecuting you. And what was the early church's response? You know what they said? First of all, they said this. We can't help but speak about the things that we've seen, first of all. We're not going to tell lies. 
It, it, it's kind of a great argument for the fact that Jesus really did rise, because why else would these disciples give their lives for something? They, gave their li- they didn't give their life for a lie. I mean, eventually when you're being tortured, you go, okay, we're making this up. He didn't really, you know, we, we snuck his body out. No. To their last breath, they wouldn't stop talking about how awesome Jesus was. They said, Peter, in prison, he says, what do you expect us to do? Do you expect us to obey you over God? You expect me to, to, to acknowledge your authority when I have a higher authority who's commissioned me into this world to preach this good news? That higher authority trumps the lower authority. It's like if your dad is like the sergeant of the whole police department, you get pulled over, you're like, you know who my dad is? And all of a sudden, that ticket becomes like a ticket to the Dolphins game. Go have an awesome time, you know? Like, a whole other situation when you have a higher authority. And that's what Jesus gives us. That's our backing as Christians. Can we remember this? That you don't go into your workplace as a light for Jesus by yourself. What are you thinking? That's not the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that you have the authority of heaven behind you. You have the kingship of Jesus behind you, sending you out to make disciples. What good news. I wouldn't be able to do this. I wouldn't do this without that. Now, here's what's interesting. These wise men, they disregarded Herod's authority in recognizing Jesus' authority. But what I find pretty interesting is that Herod knew that Jesus was the king. He knew it. He knew the Bible. He knew what it said. He knew that a Messiah would come out of Israel, out of Bethlehem. This shows you that Jesus being your king is not about you knowing that he's king. It's not about knowing the verses. It's not about what you do. This guy did a lot of spiritual looking things. At the end of the day, here's how you know Jesus is king. Here's how you really believe that Jesus is king. It looks like something called obedience. I'm gonna obey God over man. See, the reason why, listen closely, the reason why even though Herod knew Jesus was king and even though Herod acted like Jesus was king, The reason why Herod did not obey Jesus as king is because what it would cost him. It would cost him what? His throne. What does it cost you? What's it costing you? What areas of your life is God calling you to get off the throne? What areas of your life is God saying, dethrone yourself so that you can enthrone Jesus? He wants to reign over our lives. And by the way, we want Jesus to reign over our lives. It's the best case scenario. Worst case scenario is when anybody other than Jesus is king of my life. It might require some sacrifice. It might require some some discipline and counting the cost. But the cost of what we're gaining to follow Jesus does not compare with what we're leaving behind. He's the ultimate prize, what he has for our lives. So what areas? Maybe it's your finances. Maybe you're on the throne of everything in your life except your finances. And Jesus is saying, dethrone yourself from your your finances so that I can be enthroned on your finances. And I can use you financially to bless people in a way that you never could on your own. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your relationship that you're in right now and you love Jesus and you come to church and like Herod, you know the answers, but maybe Jesus is not on the throne of your relationship. 
And you've got to be dethroned so that Jesus can be enthroned. It's a conflict of authority. And sometimes the conflict of authority that we face, it's not just Jesus and the enemy, but it's, it's Jesus and me. What I gotta do is I gotta get out of his seat because he's much more equipped to rule my life than I am. Amen. Amen. So that's the first thing. The second thing we see is not just a clash of conflicting authorities, but we see a clash also, notice this, of, of contrasting cultures. Contrasting cultures. You know, a culture, a culture, certainly it's, um, it's the essence of a people group. It's how they eat, it's how they walk, it's how they talk, it's the language they speak, it's the architecture. Um, that's why it's so fun to be able to travel the world and see all the different cultures that, that God has as a variety out here in his people. But, you know, when you, when you look at a church, every church and every kingdom and every place has a culture, every people group. And you could also summarize what a culture is uh, to two things. It's values that are expressed through rhythms, or values that are expressed through practices or habits. Like, so as a church, we have uh, 10 that we call core values, and they're on our website. And that's great, because we want people to know what we want to be about. But what matters at the end of the day is not what, what we say we value. What matters is our culture. So the real win would be this, not that we have values on our website, but we have values on our hearts. We have values in our community. So we can sit here and say, man, we exist. One of our core values is this. We reach out for the one. It's one of our core values. We don't want to be the 99 righteous religious Pharisees caught up in our own holiness. How are you doing? How are we doing? Are we perfect? Are you perfect yet? We, we want to move towards holiness together, but we don't ever want to let our holy kumbaya keep us from that one person that's seeking Jesus. We want to have the eyes that Jesus has to see the person in our community, in, in our church, whatever it may be, your workplace, in our schools, to, to go after them. But is that written on our hearts? And, and the way that you find out a culture, the way that you really find out a, a culture, and I want to say, you know, we're still, show us a little grace, first of all, because if you really want to know what a culture is like, look at the leader of the culture, so God help me. But, but also, we're, we're building a culture. Would you agree? Like, let's be honest. We're not all the things we want to be. Amen? That's why there's grace. But let's set our hearts to be all that God is calling us to be. Amen. So we, we don't want to be a church service. We want to be a church family, for example. Let's pursue that. We, we want to be prayer-driven as a church, so let's pursue that. So that, that's what I mean. You know, and when, when you spend time in a culture, eventually you start to understand. Like, people don't have to tell you what they value if you hang out with them. You'll just know. You know how they do things. You know, how, you know the way that they look at people and how they value them or not. When you look at the kingdom of Jesus, the culture of the kingdom of Jesus, the way of the kingdom of Jesus, there's quite a contrast, isn't there, with the culture of Herod's? You could say that by just observing Herod's life, that what Herod valued most was his own personal success. Right? So much so that it, because that was the most supreme thing, it didn't matter what it would cost him. It didn't matter who he would have to kill. It didn't matter who he would have to step over. It didn't matter how many families he would leave childless. Because the ultimate value was, I got to be king. Me. Me. Jesus comes. And remember, one of the things that Jesus comes to do is not just to be our king, but to show us the way of his kingdom, right? And Jesus shows us a whole nother way, a whole nother culture, a whole other set of values and practices. And he says this in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus says, the Son of Man, this King, he did not come to be served, but to serve. 
and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, this is called counterculture. You know what you have here in Matthew 2? Culture shock. You have one way of doing things, the kingdom of Herod, step over people to get ahead, and then you have this child. When the wise men come to him, they bring him gold, signified his royalty. They brought him frankincense, signified his priestliness. But they also gifted him with myrrh. Myrrh. This was the spice, this was the fragrance that you would anoint a corpse with. A dead body was covered in myrrh, signifying that this child was being born so that he would one day die. This child is going to be anointed with myrrh because he's going to be buried. But that death is unlike any other man's death because it's through that death that this is actually more than a man dying. This is a king dying to save people. This is a king laying down his own life so that he could adopt us into his family and bring us into his kingdom. This is the culture of heaven contrasting cultures. And I just want to say a word about this because I just want to remind us, guys, that Christianity is not um, less than Jesus being your king and recognizing that, but there's more to that. It's, not le- it's never less than that. Nor is it anything less than being a part of a kingdom and living a certain way, but it's certainly more than that. I think today in the church, what I see a lot, just, you know, I'm 30, so I'm like right there. I'm just in that sweet spot to be able to see like pretty good over my rear and also look ahead. And, and I, I kind of feel like God's giving me this sense a bit of what's going on in the church. And man, I'm not a missiologist or a sociologist. I'm a hooked on phonics is what I am. And so I don't have, I'm, I'm not a professional in this, but something I've noticed just at least in some of my friend groups growing up in the church is there's this big split today in the church. There's Christians who are kind of tired of a religious system that talks about Jesus being king but not living according to his kingdom. The values, the ways of the kingdom. Like lordship, leadership stuff in church. Um, like like politics-driven Christianity. And, and then you have this other group of people and, and they're like, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. We're not going to bow or need anyone else. And they're kind of frustrated with how the church is living so mindful of how to live and how to be in the kingdom. And I just want to remind us that Jesus calls us to both, guys. Jesus calls us to follow him as king and to adopt the ways of his kingdom. That's what he's seeking to do in our lives. You know what that's going to mean? That should mean this. I'd like to say something controversial this morning. If your political party never causes you to face some conviction in your relationship with Jesus... If your corporate ideology never causes you to face some conviction in following Jesus, whatever man-made system you're living within, that's not the kingdom of God. If at any point it may cause you to be convicted, or maybe you're not convicted over the way of Jesus, it's possible that you're not fully following Jesus. It's possible that there might be more to following Jesus than what you've been raised with. Maybe you got to relearn what it means to follow Jesus and value people. Maybe you got to say, God, I'm, I'm all about bringing your peace on this earth. I'm all about preserving life. I'm all about the things of your, of your word. But let me not get so wrapped up in the kingdoms of this world that I don't become a citizen of your kingdom. You're my king. Not any earthly president. Amen. Amen. Jesus is king. 
Jesus is king. Now, that's going to influence and inform how you live your life. Amen? It's going to influence and affect how you vote, how you value. Don't get me wrong there, but Jesus is our king. A conflict of cultures. And lastly, we'll close with this. We also see a clash of contesting purposes. Contesting, competing purposes. Um, it's, man, there's nothing better in a movie than seeing the enemy get frustrated. That's like the best part of any movie. When the guy who's been like the antagonist the whole time, taking out the main characters, when he just gets so, like, just so messed up in the movie that he's like all angry and in jail, that's like always the best ending. That, that poetic justice, it feels so good. We kind of get a glimpse of that here. We, we saw Herod was pretty angry, or rather he was pretty troubled. Uh, and then he sends the wise men. They, they're, they're of a different order of authority. And we see they operate kingdom of Jesus operates different than Herod. Herod goes to kill all the young children. Um, but the coolest thing about this is how angry Herod's getting, because nothing's working. It's just not working. It just seems like maybe this child is going to grow up one day and be a king, no matter what Herod does. It's as if God purposed for this to happen, and no matter what would come against it, no matter what, Jesus is not dying, apart from the life that he'll lay down. And so we have these competing, contesting purposes, and I think if there's one thing we walk away with is that there really is no competition when it comes to the purposes of God. And so that's what we see start to happen. Every time Herod tries to mount up some sort of offense against Jesus, we just see um, angels showing up, even if it's angels, whatever it takes, dreams. We see these visitations, and all along the way, we see God preserving what he's purposed. God preserving what he's purposed. I love what it says in Isaiah. It says, For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? We sing it this way, right? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? When God wants something to happen, nothing's getting in the way. It's going to happen. His purposes prevail. Um, So much so that as Jesus is being moved from town to town in order to preserve his life, did you notice what was happening? Jesus, everywhere he goes to run from the enemy, he just starts fulfilling scripture. Everywhere he goes. Oh, now you get to fulfill the prophecy of being out of Egypt. Good. Oh, his Herod's son's there now? Let's go to, um, let's go to Nazareth. And now he's fulfilling the prophecy that the Messiah would be in Nazarene. So what the enemy's meaning for evil, God is using even for good to fulfill his word to fulfill his purposes. This is what it means to be on the side of the kingdom of God. The purposes of God don't have competition. The purposes of God prevail. This child would be raised to live a righteous life no matter who would get in his way. And we see, come on, do the attacks stop here? You look at Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. You look at the anxiety that he walked through, the amount of demonic oppression that he faced in his life. It didn't matter because if God was for what was going to happen, no one could be against it. Scripture tells us in Romans 8, 28, that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Let, Let me tell you what this doesn't mean. This is not always a simple, covered in roses, coffee mug, bumper sticker truth. 
He uses everything for good. You know what usually this verse applies to? When you're on your face and you're broken and you can't see beyond what you're walking through and you remember this fact, no matter what I go through, I'm not my own. I belong to Jesus both in life and death. And so whatever comes my way, it's okay because I know that I've been called according to his purpose, not my purpose. And if I'm living aimed at his purpose, God's work is going to prevail in my life. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be messy. Don't get me wrong. In fact, I can guarantee you, you better get used to that mess. It's going to be all sorts of messy, all sorts of opposition, all sorts of tragedy, all sorts of difficulty. But the hope that we have as Christians is this great news that if God is for us, which he is, I don't have to cower in the face of my enemy. Wherever you're at today, however far you feel from your purpose, the purposes of God prevail. Maybe for you, you gotta realign your heart. You gotta say, Jesus, I'm ready for you to be the king of every area of my life. Maybe it's just making Jesus the king of your calling again. That thing he's called you to do. You're the king. It's not my call. You gotta do this. Like, there was something about planting Solace Church for Brittany and I that, like, kind of a posture we had that it wasn't meant to be irreverent, but it was just sort of easy to just kind of say, Lord, it's not up to us. <laughs> All we did was say, okay, like you, you build your church. You, so in your life, remember this, it's his call. It's what he's called. It's his purpose. All we do is say, okay, Lord, I'm here. Here I am. Use me. However you want, whatever that looks like for your purpose. You know, the great news of how this story ends is that uh, Herod dies. He dies. I love that. We're just going to go over here till the guy dies. We'll be in Egypt. Oh, he's dead? Okay, we're coming home. Herod died. And guess what? Every other king before Herod died. And guess what? Every other man and king after Herod died. It's only Jesus who after dying rose. And he right now, the Bible says, is seated at the right hand of God. And he is ruling and reigning with complete control and confidence because he knows the end from the beginning. He knows the end of your life before the beginning. So listen, who else is worth making the king of your life? Who else is worth bowing your knee to? One day we're all going to bow. One day, Herod's going to bow his knee to Jesus. Everyone, let's not wait. Amen? We're going to sing a song just declaring to Jesus how much we love him. Whether you want to sit or stand, whether you want to bow on your knee, whatever God leads you to do, let's just declare to Jesus today that he's our king.